live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. I hate these guys. I don't know why you don't, and I'll be in the car. This is the Press Box. Makeup stuff. Tyler Bischoff. That player is known as the Scrabble Jackass and is then handed the box top for any further rule clarifications. Adam Candy. I can't hate him. He is so transparent in his self-interest that I kind of respect him. Would I buy a car from him? No. On ESPN Las Vegas. It is a clean feed type of day. None of us can see any of us. Ed Graney is out for the rest of the week as he is covering the Pro Bowl and the NHL All-Star Game this rest of this week. So Adam Candy is here today. Good morning, Adam. What a fun show we're going to have. Yep, this is nothing but mirth and a celebration of the fun of sports. Should, should I go to the first bite? You should. Yeah, okay. The first bite. Will Brian Flores bring change to the NFL? So yesterday, uh, Brian Flores' uh, lawsuit was announced against the NFL, alleging racism in hiring practices. The league as a whole was named, but also three specific teams, the Giants, Dolphins, and Broncos. Um, there's... Uh, different evidence against each of those teams. Obviously he was fired by the dolphins, uh, after this season, um, two main things that he would brought up about the dolphins. Uh, number one, that their owner, Stephen Ross offered to pay him a hundred thousand dollars for every loss during the 2019 season. That was, uh, according to Brian Flores to help the dolphins draft status. And Stephen Ross was not happy when the dolphins would win games also accused Stephen Ross of encouraging Brian Flores to tamper with another team's quarterback, not named in the lawsuit, but the reasonable guess there is that that was Deshaun Watson, uh, to where Flores was invited to a lunch meeting on a yacht. And when he got there, he found out Deshaun Watson or this unnamed quarterback was also going to be there. And Flores says he left the yachts, basically saying we'd be breaking NFL rules. With the Giants, this all stems from his interview with the New York Giants this offseason. So the timeline here was on a Tuesday, he gets a text message from Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick essentially is congratulating him on getting the Giants coaching job, saying, hey, it's I hear they want you. You're the guy. Congratulations. Brian Flores is, you know, like, thanks, man. I hope so. And then Brian Flores asked him, do you think this is Brian Flores or do you think this is Brian Dabble? And Bill Belichick realizes he sent a text message to the wrong Brian, Brian Flores had not interviewed for the Giants job, and Flores is accusing the Giants here of basically having hired their guy already and interviewing him simply to satisfy the Rooney rule. Uh, we can get into the Broncos stuff in a little bit. That's from a couple of years ago. But, Adam, I'm I'm curious your thoughts on Brian Flores' lawsuit and how much he managed to win public opinion yesterday, but if you think that actually matters in terms of change in the NFL. If public opinion were going to change anything, I think we'd have reached that threshold a long time ago. So no, I don't know that Brian Flores is in a situation where winning a PR war is going to do any more than instituting the Rooney Rule is. Uh, public pressure isn't going to change this. Uh, obviously, the Rooney Rule itself, judging by the content of Brian Flores' lawsuit, isn't going to change this. Uh, you're asking for change among a group of 32 almost exclusively white 
multimillionaires and billionaires in their views toward who they employ. You can let that sit and marinate for a second and decide what you think it's going to take to change that. But whatever you think of the merit of what's in the Brian Flores suit, I think the question that's part and parcel to all of this is why would Brian Flores choose to do this? What has to have happened to Brian Flores, not just that's listed in this lawsuit, but over the course of his life and his career that led him to the point of potentially jeopardizing any future he has in the highest organization in his profession. And what it leads me to, Tyler, is to say I've heard many times over the last 24 hours or so that Brian Flores is jeopardizing any chance he has of coaching in the NFL again. And I think the experiences Brian Flores are, is detailing says Brian Flores already felt like that was over. <laughs> Yeah. Brian Flores already felt like this game is rigged against me in such a way that I don't know that I have anything to lose. I mean, realistically, yes, by the public circumstances of this, he has a great amount to lose. But everything about this suit reads like a man who doesn't feel like he has a lot left to jeopardize that the circumstances have already taken away from him. Yeah, Brian Flores feels like he's an NFL head coach. Brian Flores, in his mind, says thinks he should be the head coach of an NFL team, and he feels like he is not that, uh, not because of anything that he has done in his career. He feels that way because he is black and because the NFL, I mean, he in his lawsuit, he's laid out some of the numbers about NFL head coaches and how few of them are black, and maybe the most telling one was that uh, the average black coach in the NFL gets fired after two and a half years, and the average white coach in the NFL gets fired after three and a half years. Basically saying, hey, if you if you are a white guy, you get an extra year to basically prove yourself. So it is it's a fascinating position for Brian Flores to take because there were a handful of tweets yesterday about people saying there are lots of guys in the coaching profession that feel the same way as Brian Flores, but aren't willing to sort of take the risk or take the you know potential career suicide by doing this by bring even just bringing up stories that i'm sure a lot of other people have and that's the interesting part here i am curious to see if there are more coaches that join this lawsuit because there were some tweets yesterday that sort of implied that that could happen there could be more people that jump into this because there's the public opinion side which it felt like yesterday Brian Flores won that. But that, like you said, probably not going to change much. The actual court side, not that I'm a lawyer, but I find it hard to believe that anything Brian Flores brought up is going to actually create significant change because it's, hey, an employee of the New England Patriots said the New York Giants were already hiring a guy before they interviewed Flores. That feels like something you can get past in court. But I am wondering... If there's more coaches, how many more coaches are willing to do it? Because it's something like as far as an institutional change goes, you have to have a Brian Flores and then you have to have more people behind it if there's going to be that change. But the Brian Flores and the people behind that either have to be comfortable not working in it in the NFL again or like you said with Brian Flores already feel like, well, I'm not going to make it anyways or they're not going to give me another chance anyways. So I'm going to do this. So I'm. I'm very curious to see what happens next and who follows Brian Flores' lead. If you are going to look at the need for institutional change, which is obvious 
and glaring. And the fact that Mike Tomlin is the only black head coach in the NFL in a league that's 70% black players tells you everything you need to know about Brian Flores' situation and many coaches beyond him. So I think the one thing that I didn't make clear the first time I talked about this this morning is just to say these are moments where I feel as a white person in my tiny little place in this world as any sort of voice, I think we all, if you feel the way that you feel, need to say it explicitly that there is racism in the NFL because what Brian Flores is doing is taking the quiet part that we all kind of know but don't really say and blasting it out loud to everybody. And so let's add our voices. That's the idea of a class action suit. He's offering those who've had similar experiences the opportunity to legally get some sort of recourse to this. So if you're someone who feels the same way, say it. And I'm saying it. I agree with Brian Flores. I support him in everything that he's doing. I think the one thing that we can add to all of this is that Colin Kaepernick's situation involved Colin Kaepernick standing up for something that in the end could be defined as ambiguous, right? I agree with Colin Kaepernick about the place of the national anthem and why he was protesting in the manner that he was protesting. There are those who believe that it's disrespecting the flag. Uh, there is even though I don't agree with it, a reasonable debate that I think can be held about that. Brian Flores' situation is different than Colin Kaepernick's in this. Brian Flores is openly challenging the owners of the NFL. This isn't something where you have to make a moral decision about what you think about Colin Kaepernick. Brian Flores is bringing the fight to the doorstep of some of the richest and most powerful people in the world. And that's the part that is going to make this, I'm going to say, as someone without a true stake in it, fascinating to watch but I am endlessly impressed by the courage that Brian Flores has in putting himself as the face of this. The ambiguous part about the, the comparison to Colin Kaepernick, I, that's, that's a good point because this is very, there's, I mean, there is going to be another side, but there's not really another side. And you can very easily come to it with, hey, these are the numbers, right? Mike Tomlin's the only one that exists right now. These are how often black coaches get fired or how quickly they get fired compared to white coaches. Like, there's a lot of data to back this up. And so there's not a lot of ambiguity into what Brian Flores is saying uh, needs to change or what the problems are in the NFL. And I would add this, I, Mita Kimes made this point yesterday. I thought it was probably the best one. It's not so much that, like, it's not that the New York Giants are racist because they hired Brian Dabble. It's not that Brian Dabble is, is not a competent head coaching candidate, but her point from yesterday that I thought was a good one was that if you were simply hiring the best person for the job every time, there'd be more than one black head coach in the NFL. That it wouldn't be 31, or well, not 31 to 1, 28 to 1, however many openings there are right now. Like, it would be, there would be much more diversity if you were simply hiring the best person. So it's not that, it's not that these coaches, or these organizations, excuse me, when they make these hirings are doing anything that's like extremely vile. Like, it's not like they're extremely racist against Brian Flores. It's just that that's what institutional racism gives you, is that just the slightest bit of inequality can lead to, as the dominoes fall, this massive inequality on the larger scale where there's only Mike Tomlin and where Brian Flores can feel the way he feels because it's not like Brian Dabble's unqualified. It's just that this is how the NFL works. And until there's actual change, until there's people in the positions, whether it's the owners, 
hiring the GMs or the GMs making the decision with the coaches. Like whenever that that's that's where it has to change. It has to change at that level where those people actually make an effort and it's not just a well, we've got to interview another black guy for this head coaching job. We really don't want to hire him. We want to hire Brian Dabble instead already, but we got to satisfy this Rooney rule until like that's that's got to be out. It's got to be an actual effort from those owners to find minority candidates to be head coaches. Absolutely. Brian Dable is, by all reports, a qualified candidate to be a head coach in the NFL. Is he more qualified than Brian? That's for someone else to decide, but I don't think so when you look at the fact that Brian Flores has already demonstrated success as a head coach in the NFL. I was listening to Brian Flores and his attorneys with Mike Greenberg on Get Up right before we started. So to add a couple of points to what we've talked about already, uh, Brian Flores' lawyers said that they've already heard from other coaches and other people in Brian Flores' position who have said that their leadership groups also offered them incentives for tanking. That's massive. That's absolutely massive. And to add one piece to the part about Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, uh, Stephen Ross also has a multi-million dollar investment in a gambling company. Uh, we're talking about an owner who has his hands into gambling in the NFL who is incentivizing losing from his own team. That is worse than Pete Rose, if it is true. By I, far worse than Pete Rose. I think we're going to both be on the same side of this because, a, first off, A, I think both of us are fans of tanking. But tanking as an organization is tanking from the front office putting together a roster and deciding eh, where to not spend money because you're not trying to win the championship that year. When it turns into a, or when it tries to turn into a coach and player level, that's where this is a significantly different thing. It's one thing to put together a roster that you think, well, we're not going to win a lot and we'd rather pick higher. It's another thing to go to your head coach and say, hey, listen, every time you lose, we're going to give you $100,000. Like, first off, you're going to the wrong person because coaches and players, they don't personally benefit from tanking. They don't have the long-term job security to actually lose. They have a short time frame to prove they're good at what they do. But also, that's where the integrity of the game comes in, where if you have a coach who is intentionally making decisions to lose games, like that's that's massive. And you bring in the fact that the NFL and Stephen Ross in particular have ties to gambling. Like that's that's absolutely going to be a massive problem. And probably the bad thing, I bet the NFL is more worried about that today than the actual uh, allegations of racism in their hiring practices. So if you're sitting here right now and you've listened to us talk for almost 15 minutes about this and you're saying, well, yeah, everybody knows about tanking, right? Like, like you guys talk about it all the time. Everybody knows what's going on. Well, yeah, someone is saying the quiet part out loud. See the parallel? I mean, that's, that's everything that's going on in this, right? It's even if you want to talk about Brian Flores having been in the position of head coach of the Miami Dolphins, he had not been head coach of the Miami Dolphins for any length of time before his billionaire white owner came to him and said, and this is how you're going to do the job. You're going to lose. And Brian Flores basically said, the hell I am. And if that doesn't bother you, that, that dynamic all by itself, I don't know what to say. Because here we are, starting the two weeks before the Super Bowl, 
the NFL's favorite hype time in all of the year. And this is what we're talking about. And if you don't like that, if you're someone who says, well, why aren't we talking about football? We are talking about football. It's just the part that doesn't get talked about when we're talking about the games. To end a serious topic on a, on a lighter note here, did you know Bill Belichick used so many exclamation points in text messages? That might have been the, the, the statement that I saw the most on social media yesterday beyond the Brian Flores news that's like, wow, Bill Belichick texts like a teenage girl. I also enjoyed um, his text when he realized that he sent it to the wrong Brian was just signing it BB at the end. Like all of a sudden yep. he was like, uh-oh, I, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh, BB, just get out of this email as quickly as I possibly can. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into the Golden Knights. They got a win last night, a big win over the Buffalo Sabres to head into the All-Star break. Two on one for the Sabres. McNabb is back, right wing shot, score! Alex Tuck from the right wing. Four minutes to go in the second period. And Tuck is on the board in his return to T-Mobile Arena. One of the funniest things that could happen in hockey happened last night. Golden Knights hosting the Sabres. They end up winning the game 5-2, but the Sabres have quite a lot of former Golden Knights, including three guys that were making their uh, debut at T-Mobile Arena as a member of another team, Alex Tuck, Cody Eakin, and Peyton Krebs. And so the Sabres decided to do the fun thing, and they started those three at the beginning of the game. Granted, they don't play on the same line normally. I think they're on three different lines on a normal basis, but started them. Say, so, you three, here's a nice moment for you. They gave up a goal less than 40 seconds in, and it is the only thing we were missing was Jack Eichel being the one to score that goal. You know what? Here's what I have to say about the Buffalo Sabres. Good on you. What else do you have to lose this year? You've lost every other way. Lose the fun way. So go <laughs> ahead. Let Alex Tuck and Peyton Krebs and Tyler's favorite player, Cody Eakin, have one oh more run out there together on the ice. Oh, did I, did I touch the button? Well, okay. On yesterday's show, because listen, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I pay attention to the Buffalo Sabres, but I looked up during the show yesterday some advanced stats for the Buffalo Sabres, and you're not going to believe it, but Cody Eakin has the worst Corsi on the team, and he has the third worst expected goals rate on the team. It's incredible that this guy is still in the NHL. But he's not really in the NHL. He's in Buffalo. That's a, okay, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Which, by the way, okay. How do the Sabres have to feel right now? Like, first off, they, they suck, but like, the whole Jack Eichel situation, and I know he hasn't actually returned to the ice yet, but you basically had an organization say, no, we're not going to let our best player get the surgery he wants on his neck. We're going to demand that he get a different surgery. And then another team is like, well, well, we'll take him and we'll let him get whatever surgery he wants. And if, like, if Jack Eichel comes back and is... 90% of what he was before that. Like, if you're the Sabres, what do you what do you do as an organization? Like, you're looking around saying, how badly did you screw that up? I don't know if you can as the Sabres, though, Tyler, because the deadlock was there, and when it comes to the medical side, I mean, unless Stephen Ross is the owner of the Buffalo Sabres, I don't think the owner is going to walk in and say, I don't care what the medical team says. You're going to do this. Uh, so... The Buffalo Sabres did what they absolutely had to do, and when your dispute is that public, 
your leverage is gone. You're going to get what you can get, and they got what they could get. And maybe by the time Peyton Krebs blossoms, they have a Nick Suzuki situation on their hands where you know the prospect the Golden Knights traded for Max Pacioretty becomes a star in the league. Uh, how about Corsi 4, though? How about this? Just in a single game here, the Buffalo Sabres, in losing in a completely uncompetitive 5-2 game, won Corsi 4 in every period last night. <laughs> Hockey continues to be stupid. It's a dumb sport, and it's great. Um, I do have a question for you. How many players actually deserve to get a tribute video and have the Golden Knights locked themselves into giving anybody that does anything with the organization a tribute video? Because last night, Eakin, Krebs, and Tuck all kind of got a shared welcome back video. Peyton Krebs played 13 games for the Golden Knights with zero career goals for the Golden Knights, but he was included in that. Like, have they backed themselves into a corner that anyone who ever puts on or looks at their jersey gets a video when they come back? Oh, you know who screwed this up? Cody Eakin screwed this up because you could do a reasonable Alex Tuck video, right? And so if you do an Alex Tuck video and Peyton Krebs isn't in there, then you come back and say, yeah, well, he played 13 games, whatever. But Cody Eakin was also on the Misfits. And so you have to include Cody Eakin because he's part of the greatest thing that has ever happened to this team. The only thing that's disappointing was that I would have liked a video that was like 75% Cody Eakin, like maybe... 15% Peyton Krebs, and the other 10% was that every time they played an Alex Tuck clip, it was just Braden Holtby stopping oh. him in the finals. That would have been so mean. That would have been mean to everybody involved. These are supposed to be nice moments. I would have enjoyed that, but these are supposed to be nice moments. I would have enjoyed it greatly just because the last media interaction I had with Alex Tuck, he was kind of a little bit of a jerk. Oh. And so I'm like, ah, it's fine. Play the Braden Holtby clip over again. There's the reality. All right, coming up next, we're joined by Dom, and I'm always excited to try to pronounce his last name, Lou Shinson, maybe. Petrangelo helps it along. Weird kick. Turnaround shot score. That went off a partition. Nothing that the Knights could have done about that. That's an unfortunate bounce. Tage Thompson gets it out in front, ripped home by John Hayden, and the Knights now lead 5-2. to two. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. Joining us now from The Athletic, uh, and Dom, I know we've had you on before and we do this every time, so I'm going to give it another shot because I can never quite get it right. Dom Lushinson. <laughs> not even close. Oh, it's not? <laughs> Uh, that was he would one know. of the, the worst attempts I've heard, which I think relative to the other attempts, because I've been on here before, that'll be really low. Um, I'm disappointed. I've gotten worse, apparently. This isn't going well for me at all. Um, <laughs> oh, well, uh, I am curious if we start with the Golden Knights and we look sort of like big picture into the future when you're projecting players and projecting how good teams are be are going to be. What do you do with Jack Eichel? Like, how do you get a reasonable or a good projection on what Jack Eichel is going to be? Uh, well, we knew what he was last year and the year before that, so that's generally helpful, right? Every projection I have for every player uses the last three years, and because Eichel played some games last year and the year before, that there's still something to be gleaned from that to know what to expect. But at the same time, that was based on his time in Buffalo with 
a terrible roster with very poor teammates and can be a little different in Vegas where he's going to have some really good wingers to play with. When we look at season-long stats for a team like the Golden Knights that has had so much of their roster turnover during the year, I mean, there are players coming up that those of us who follow the team, we're not entirely sure we're in the system that we see come up. Um, What do we do with season-long advanced stats for the Golden Knights? How well do systems adjust for the different names that don't have a lot of track record that have been in and out? I think that's why it's best to look at things at the player level and sort of add things up from there and factor in the fact that players like Eichel will be in the roster at some point and measure what the roster should be on a day-to-day basis based on who is actually playing. So right now, for example, the Golden Knights, I think, are outside of top 10 in expected goal percentage, but once they're healthy, once everyone's in the lineup, that should still be a top five team closer to what we've seen in each of the past few years from them. So it it's tricky when you have a team that's been injured. And the same thing goes for the St. Louis Blues, uh, who are one of the worst expected goals teams in the league, but have dealt with injuries themselves. And they're going through the same issues that the Golden Knights are, where you expect the team to look a lot better once everyone is available. When this team is healthy, assuming that happens, which is probably a, a bad assumption at this point, but... If they're going to get Jack Eichel back before the postseason and be healthy, they're going to have to move someone. They don't have enough salary cap space for this roster to be intact and add Jack Eichel to it. And I'm curious from from your view, like what's what position or what type of player should they move? Like what has the lowest value? Is it a you know upcoming free agent like a Riley Smith? Is it a center like William Carlson because that's the position Jack Eichel plays or is it a defenseman? Because they could do it to Shea Theodore or Braden McNabb, anything like that. Like, is there a position that sticks out to you that says that's where that would hurt the team the least to move that type of player? I think that no matter what they do, it's going to hurt in some way. And I think, obviously, the way to do it is to make it hurt the least. Carlson is an interesting one because he has not looked quite the same as he usually does this year. So, It'd be interesting if he's the guy. I, I think Riley Smith has played really well, but obviously if he's a free agent that puts the, the damper on things, I think the team has done pretty fine without Alec Martinez. So I wonder if that is the way to go. I don't know. I would not be eager to move Shea Theodore for sure, but Martinez, on the other hand, it seems like with Nicholas Hague and Braden McNabb and Zach Whitecloud, they have enough defensive depth to maybe – survive that where the whole point of getting Jack Eichel was that team would have this immense center depth and giving up William Carlson sort of defeats that purpose. Dom, how much stronger as a whole is the Eastern Conference than the Western Conference this year? Uh, A lot stronger. I feel like (laughs) the West has three good teams and that's Colorado, Vegas, and Minnesota and the East has probably like six or seven if you maybe even eight if you really believe that the Rangers can be a lot better than they have shown and not just be a team that's built off goaltending. But from top to bottom, the Eastern Conference playoff teams are all legit. They can all contend for a cup, whereas the West is a bit more cut and dry. How's uh, betting on the Seattle Kraken going for you? Uh, Not great. Um, I track all the teams I bet on, all the teams that I fade, and that is 
by far the least profitable team, but the last couple games I've been betting against them, so hopefully that new strategy works out. But honestly, when I was betting on them, I was winning almost every other bet, and right now I'm losing a lot of bets, so I much prefer <laughs> sacrificing the money to the Seattle Kraken gods and winning in other ways than the current system that I'm on right now. Dom, for our listeners out there who are looking at the football calendar and saying, what do you mean there's only one more game to bet on? Uh, and trying to understand a little bit more about betting hockey as we me- mesh both hockey and betting here in our Las Vegas market, what would your advice to them be? Uh, well, the best advice I can give you is follow what I do on the athletic. Uh, there you I go. I feel like I have a pretty decent track record over the last few years of beating the market. I think the the biggest thing with betting is getting the best price and getting the best lines and finding someone who can continuously offer closing line value is an incredible resource. And my model has been able to do that despite the fact that it's in the public where it's much harder to continuously beat the closing line. But it's in a, a bit of a rough patch right now after a very hot October, November, and December. But I think it'll turn around and still getting the best prices. So that is what I would suggest. And there's an article linked to my betting guide that shows sort of a step-by-step guide on like how betting works and how I sort of do things that I think is useful for beginners as well. Can you give us some context on just how bad the Montreal Canadiens are? Uh, I... Uh... I don't even know what kind of context is there, but just the fact that they, I think, have the highest salary cap expenditure this year and were supposed <laughs> to be good and are somehow worse than the Arizona Coyotes, who are actively trying to be bad, is probably the best context you can give for that team. Hold on. If you are a team, like the Golden Knights here, that lost to the Canadians in the playoffs last year, should that make you feel better or worse that they are just god-awful now? I am from Toronto, for listeners who don't know, so I'm in the same boat, and it feels it feels worse, I think, knowing that they probably legitimately fluke their way to a cup final, whereas the Golden Knights have struggled to get back there since their first season, and the Leafs can't even get out of the first round, playing a team that is now worse than the Arizona Coyotes. It's just, it feels bad, but that's that's how life is in this wacky sport where literally anything can happen. So speaking of the Arizona Coyotes, for those who were not paying attention last night, they just had one of the biggest betting upsets of the last 15 to 20 years in beating the Colorado Avalanche, uh, who by most accounts is the best team in the Western Conference. Uh, so let me ask you a very informed question. What was that? That's that's hockey, baby. I <laughs> I could not believe it. Um, I didn't have a bet on that game, so I'm actually a little mad because I bet on the Coyotes to beat the Avalanche, I think, two or three weeks ago, and they took them to a shootout. So I was wondering where this energy was three weeks ago. Uh, luckily, <laughs> I had plus one and a half that game, so it was all, it was all good. But, yeah, I, I did not expect that. I think I had Arizona's chances at 17%, but... As we know, 17% is not 0%, and we saw that manifest last night. 
All right, before we let you go, Dom, I do want to ask you, are we going to get any sort of analytical breakdown on how to properly play the blackjack contest we're going to see at the skills competition? I I don't think so, but I'm really excited to see that event because it sounds like a lot of fun. He is dumb. I'm not going to give it another shot. I already Decision. embarrassed myself. From The Athletic, Dom, as always, we appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Adam, what was what was the money line on the Coyotes last night? Uh, the Coyotes were plus 475 last <laughs> night. So, essentially, for every dollar you bet, you would have won close to five. <laughs> and they won. They handled it. It is the yeah. biggest betting upset in the NHL since 2006. 2006? Jesus. Yeah. That's that's always fun. That's a that's a good example of hockey is dumb, right? Well, yeah, because now the Colorado Avalanche, if you look at their last ten games, are nine zero and one, with that one being a shootout <laughs> loss to the Arizona Coyotes. It is the first shootout loss for Colorado this year. They're thirty two eight and four. Yeah, they're pretty good. Good thing they're not in the Pacific Division. Coming up next, Jim Harbaugh. Wait, is he actually taking an NFL job or not? I think if Tom's gonna retire. I feel like he'll announce it himself. That's kind of the process uh, that I went through when I retired. Uh, Jimmy, in 2011, when I got injured with the Colts and a lot of rumors whether I was going to come back or play or not, Rob Lowe tweeted out that he knew firsthand that I was about to retire. And I had to call a press conference to actually say, you know, I always thought I would announce my retirement, not the guy that played Soda Pop Curtis in The Outsiders. And I feel like... Who do you think? I feel like Tom is in that same boat a little bit. Like, I think he'll make the announcement at the appropriate time. It's the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas featuring Adam Candy. Ed is out at uh, the Pro Bowl and NHL All-Star events this weekend. This Las Vegas hosts back-to-back All-Star games. Adam Candy in today. Some news in the NFL, or some potential news in the NFL, is that Jim Harbaugh is going to take the Minnesota Vikings job. That is according to 1-3 Sports. Harbaugh is interviewing in Minnesota, and it is reportedly a basically a formality that he will be offered and will accept the Minnesota Vikings job. So my first question is from Jim Harbaugh's point of view for you. Is that a good NFL job for Jim Harbaugh to take? You want to look at roster and just say, are there pieces there you can start with? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, you have to accept that Kirk Cousins is Kirk Cousins in order to, to do that. But if you want to look at that team and say, sure, you're going to hand me an offense that has Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen, and Dalvin Cook. That's a hell of a lot better situation than Brian Dable's walking into in New York. So if you're going to go to Minnesota, I think you get a few advantages. One, you look at the rest of that division and you say, the worst that can happen to me is Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay for one more year. And then you say, I've got the Detroit Lions, the Chicago Bears, and what's left of the Packers. And I probably have the best roster among that group for the next few years. So Minnesota, to me, would be a very attractive job for a new starting coach. Yeah, it feels like a team that is potentially a division favorite. Now, obviously, if Rodgers comes back, it's the Packers are the division favorite there, but potentially a division favorite, even if not a true Super Bowl contender. Granted, you know, the 49ers almost got there and the Bengals are there, and we wouldn't have said that this time last year about either one of those teams, but 
it does feel like a, a, I guess, decent place to end up, given that most head coaching openings are bad teams that aren't anywhere close. On the Minnesota side of this, would you say the Vikings made the best hire of the offseason simply because they got Harbaugh? Oh, not at all. Look, I've made this case repeatedly that judging Jim Harbaugh's past success in San Francisco is like judging Tony LaRusso's success in Oakland as a reason to hire him in Chicago when the success is so far removed from the current day. You can't look at what's happened with Jim Harbaugh and say, well, he's he's won in the league before. He won in a very different league than the NFL is now. So, no, not at all. I mean, if I'm in Jim Harbaugh's shoes, though, I am looking at my situation right now and saying, I damn well better get out while I can because this was the height of what you can accomplish at the University of Michigan, and yet still they got waxed by Georgia in the national playoffs, and you're going to come back next year, and the one thing people are going to be saying to you is, oh, cool, so you beat Ohio State once? Awesome, do it again. So, okay, you don't think Michigan is that good of a job then? Like, if, if you're putting the ceiling on it is win the Big Ten and make the playoffs, are you saying you don't think Michigan's that great of a job? I don't think Michigan's that great of a job at all. Ohio State is going to be the class of that conference for as long as that conference exists. And Ohio State is going to continue to out-recruit you. And there's a reason Ohio State has beaten you up and down the field for most of the past decade that is less about Jim Harbaugh and more about who Ohio State is. Michigan can be in that next tier, but when you're in that next tier, you're just hoping that you catch the team in the top tier in a bad year or with a bad injury situation when you are in a job that is literally defined by one game every single year, and this is the first year you've ever won that game. So if you're Harbaugh, what happens when you wear out your welcome at Michigan? Where do you go next? Like, to me, that seems like a one-way ticket to UTEP. Whereas if you go to Minnesota in the NFL and you succeed, great, you're an NFL head coach. And if it doesn't work out, you could always be Nick Saban and come back and be the returning conquering hero in college. You know what's interesting? That there's like more levels of success in the NFL than there is at Michigan. Like, like you're saying, it's basically beat Ohio State slash make the playoff win the national championship. Like that's kind of the only levels of success for Michigan. But, like, if he goes to Minnesota and let's say he's there for four years and they make the playoffs three times in four years, you know, lose one NFC championship game or something like that, like, he's going to be viewed as a massive success as a head coach. Like, it's it's interesting that there's just more pathways to success for an NFL coach than whoever's going to be the next Michigan head coach. Well, think of the fan bases, right? There's no fan base in the NFL that looks at beating one other team as – as good as beating six or seven other teams. Right? If you're Michigan and you go, let's say, seven and five, but you beat Ohio State, most of your fans walk into the offseason saying, yeah, but we beat Ohio State. Whereas if you go, you know, to the what, what's the equivalent in the NFL? If you go nine and eight in the NFL, if you go 10 and seven in the NFL, that can be viewed as a success as long as Rich Passaccia. <laughs> Poor Rich Passaccia. Come on. We didn't need to do that to Rich Passaccia yet. Okay. Last thing on this that I'm curious about. If you were Matt Rule, would you leave the Panthers to take the Michigan job? 100%. Because Matt Rule is where I was just saying Jim Harbaugh would be if he didn't succeed 
in Minnesota. The bottom is about to drop out really, really hard in Carolina in a way that you don't come back from. This man committed to Sam Darnold last offseason for this year. And Sam Darnold showed you last year that he is going to be one of the five worst quarterbacks in the NFL. So if you're Matt Rule, you better run the hell out of there really fast because you also have a billionaire owner in Steven Tepper who does not want to be embarrassed in his first run as an owner in the most prestigious league in America and is going to send you and your pretty little smocks right out the door in a heartbeat if you don't win this year. So on three uh, sports, as part of their report about Harbaugh, uh, taking the Minnesota job today when he interviews there, they also reported that Matt Rule would be a candidate uh, for the Michigan job. There was an internal candidate, I believe it's their running backs coach as well, was the other guy that they named, but Matt Rule was named that, uh, named a candidate. Rule is, uh, they've won about five games, I think, each of the last two years in Carolina. Uh, but this is a guy who, at Baylor, his first year, they went 1 and 11. And his third year, they were 11 and 1. Uh, he had back-to-back 10-win seasons at Temple. Like, he kind of demonstrated that he's a was a successful college coach in a very short time frame. Uh, but I, I think I'm with you. Even though we just sort of laid out the reasons why an NFL job is probably better than a, uh, the job at Michigan, the situation in Carolina is so bad. When you don't have a quarterback answer, like at all, then you kind of need to get out. You kind of need to go to Michigan if given that opportunity. So this is... This is a, a fun coach. I like the coaching carousel when it involves the NFL and college football intertwining. You can turn around a college program a lot faster than you can turn around an NFL program. Do not be fooled by Joe Burrow and the Bengals <laughs> turning it around from 2-14 and 14 because he's Joe Burrow and you're not.